This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of uh, Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales. There you go, um, giving ourselves a good 19th century long title there. And this podcast is going to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the sailing around the world of the CSS Shenandoah. Uh, and it's going to be brought to you by... Rob and Mob. Robert I am Love. Mob, by the way. <laughs> and I am Rob, Robert Love, so Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. And yes, almost 150 years ago today, Mob, the CSS Shenandoah, or as it then was, the Sea King was preferring to leave London on its dark and uh, dangerous journey. So... Very exciting. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about its round-the-world journey. It actually left uh, London in on this day, 150 years ago. Yes. And appeared back there about 13 months later, having sailed around the world. Yes. Uh, it captured many uh, American ships. It caused all sorts of uh, drama and excitement. Havoc. Havoc, yes. And... Uh, Amongst other things, it landed in Australia. It landed in the hometown or the home city that Rob and I are both from, Melbourne, Australia. Yes, and um, look, people people do make um, yeah assertions about Melbourne um, uh, when they filmed um, on the beach here. Um, the the phrase came out that Melbourne was a good place to film a movie about the end of the world. Said uh, Arva Gardner, Said, I believe. Uh, Arva Gardner, yes, yes. Um, and uh, so, yes, Melbourne perhaps is, is not the most exciting place, but nevertheless, um, 150 years ago, it was in fact a centre of of the American Civil War and and world politics, and that's really why uh, Michael and myself became interested in it. Or although, although in fact, uh, Michael became interested uh, by buying a a book. I did. I bought it for ten cents. Ten cents. It was at the. Nunawading, that's an Aboriginal word, it's a suburb here in Melbourne, the Nunawading Library in about 1983, I think I bought the book. It was called Rebel Down Under. By Cyril Pearl. Uh, who was a uh, a well-known journalist in the, the mid-20th century. Um, and yes, well-known Australian man of letters. And uh, yes, he, so um, uh, Michael eventually passed that book on to me and uh, we, we both read it. And uh, I found it interesting, Rob, because I didn't know anything about this. This is why I picked it up. Um, it was sitting there in that book. You know, whenever you go to the public library, they usually have a big tray of books that are unloved and forgotten <laughs> that, that they're, they're, they're trying to sell off. And they were selling this one for 10 cents. And I picked it up and I found it absolutely fascinating. He'd actually written this book in the, uh, I think it was the 1960s. Yes. And uh, what he did was something that we've been able to do as well, which is go back to the newspapers of the time. Yes, although, of course, um, 
because we're doing this in 2014, um, we've been lucky enough that, uh, in fact, a lot of the newspapers of the time, uh, by no means all, but uh, quite a few of them, uh, are now online. So um, this sort of detailed historical research is now really um, you know, able to be utilised by the, the amateur historian, um, as we are, and um, so we'll be able to to dig into the um, to the newspaper record um, in Melbourne and hopefully overseas as we presumably Cyril Pearl would have had to have gone into the uh, Mitchell Library and uh, yes dug out the the actual yellowing copies of uh, the actual original yes, newspapers the, the yellowing copies of yes of, of all those old. Um, uh, back back in a, in a previous life when I was a librarian, I actually uh, worked with the 19th century uh, newspapers and I, I have to say they were a very dusty, dusty place. And they were in a warehouse that the library uh, shared with the uh, the Melbourne Museum. So you would go in and you would look at these big things of um, 19th century newspapers and there would be a stuffed tiger in a, in a case next to the newspapers or an antelope up on the wall or an old computer. Which, um, Whereas these days, when you're doing it on Google, you're just doing it next to cat pictures. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, interestingly, um, another, another uh, Civil War historian in the Civil War centennial, so that's 50 years ago, he actually examined the literature of the war and, and, and found that Though there were thousands of volumes of literature about the land battles, um, all the books about its naval affairs could easily fit on the shelf of one wall of a small room, is what he said. Interestingly, I don't think that's the case anymore because we've been actually able to find uh, a very large number of books about this particular fairly obscure piece of uh, of the American Civil War only one, as far as I can tell, was specifically about uh, the visit of the Shenandoah to Melbourne, though we're going to keep our investigations going as we go through this uh, this series. Yes, there, there has, in fact, been a, a little bit of a, um, I don't think, a, a resurgence in, uh, in interest in the, um, in the voyage of the Shenandoah over the last few years, um, possibly due to the fact that it's sea. 150th anniversary of the American Civil War, uh, which, which is kind of why we're doing this uh, this podcast now. Um, but we've managed to find a, a number of sources. Um, we've hold got, them up to the microphone. Right? Hold them up, yes. The, the, the splatting you are now hearing is uh, them being held up to the microphone. So um, we're going to be having a look and a talk about, um, over the course of the podcast, um, a number written uh, some time ago, a Confederate raider in the North Pacific. So I think a number of these books were basically written for the 100th anniversary back in the, the 1960s. Uh, and then, of course, there were some memoirs uh, at the time, like... Uh, James Iredell Waddell, the captain of the Shenandoah's His Memoirs. Uh, there's some more recent uh, stuff. The Officers of the CSS Shenandoah will certainly be having a look at that by Angus Curry, which was published, Turning Pages Special Effects, in 2006. The Last Shot, The Incredible Story of the CSS Shenandoah, uh, which again was, I think, in the mid-2000s. the mid And also, um, the executive officer of the Shenandoah won... William C. Whittle Jr., excuse me, I'll, I'll, I'll get that name, um, his uh, journal of the, the voyage of the Shenandoah was discovered uh, by a, a distant descendant um, in the attic um, only a few years ago, and um, despite the fact that uh, it was written at the time on the Shenandoah, 
Um, it was only actually the the actual uh, journal was only actually published in 2005, and I've no doubt that um, as we go through uh, the voyage of the Shenandoah and we live podcast its 150th anniversary, that we'll find lots more sources, and of course um, we'd be very interested to hear um, sources that uh, listeners have, and um, we can we can talk about them as well. I like the fact that the Shenandoah uh, the the uh, journal by William Whittle, he actually has called it a memorable cruise. Yes, yeah, I think I think memorable. Um, yes, possibly. Um, yeah, yeah, that might be a tactful way of putting it. So I think that might be a way uh, because the the Shenandoah it um, it sailed around the world, but it sailed in a state of utter lack of preparedness. It sailed into the Arctic with no idea of you know. None of the equipment that you need to sail around the Arctic, and and, um, and and Rob, memorably, I think very memorably, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more. It actually sailed around the world as a ship of war, actually being physically not capable of firing any of its guns. Physically, actually not capable of firing anything of guns. Yeah, there are a number of details about the voyage of the Shenandoah that, that you think when you start researching it that they must have made that up. That 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 you know. You would only have a detail like that if if you were making this as a as a as a comic movie, you know the 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 ship that couldn't shoot straight or something like that. But no, um, well, actually, in this case, the ship that couldn't <laughs> shoot at all, the ship that couldn't shoot. So, which, which is funny, given that it was a it was a ship that fired the last shot of the American Civil War, possibly with its six pound signal gun, possibly with a six pound signal gun, possibly with a blank. But on the other hand, um, it never lets fire the last shot. So, and this also means that um, um, it's been the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the American Civil War, and, and I have to say, Michael, I I did not realise when the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the Civil War came along how thoroughly it would be gazumped by. Not just the 70th anniversary of World War II, um, which is not really a significant anniversary, except it's a very significant anniversary in that it's the last anniversary when some of the original combatants will still be alive. And also, of course, the 100th anniversary of the First World War. So, so I was, you know, when we were thinking about this project a year, you know, two or three years ago, I was thinking the 150th anniversary of the Civil War was, was going to be a big thing. And so far, I have to say it hasn't. Um, there was um, Abraham Lincoln, critical and popular success. But a bit of a snooze fest, actually, in retrospect, I uh, believe. Yes, containing, of course, a, a massively wonderful uh, portrayal by Daniel Day-Lewis, but they all are. Uh, but once, once you get past once you get past Abraham Lincoln... Oh, hang on, hang on. There's another Abraham Lincoln movie <laughs> that came out, Rob. Fear <laughs> oh, goes. I've been trying to forget that. That's right. Yes, there was Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. And uh, I have two teenage boys, and if if they were not the audience for that movie, then nobody was, and, and they thought it was... There was quiet. also, uh, and oddly it came out in 2010, The Conspirator, which was about the assassins of Abraham Lincoln. And given that that actually happened a uh, 100 years ago next year, it's a bit odd that it came out in 2010. And if I said that the uh, movie Lincoln was a bit of a, a, a snooze fest, um, actually The Conspirator was... I thought very dull. Yeah, how do you make a dull movie about a political assassination after which all the main 
perpetrators are hung. What uh, we haven't got so far is any more movies like, say, Gettysburg, which was made back in the 1990s. Yeah, with, we, know, we, we seem to have... thousands and yeah, magnificent yeah. false beards. And I would actually suspect that false beard technology <laughs> has come a long way since then, <laughs> and they could do an amazing uh, remake. Because I remember, I think it was... Uh, I'm trying to remember who the actor was that played... Um, Martin, Bruce, was it Martin Sheen? Bruce Bartlett. I, I suspect that possibly even Martin Sheen had grown his own beard for that part. Maybe he hadn't. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of the guy who played Longstreet. In fact, there were two actors. There was Tom Skerritt in um, Gettysburg and the man who was in Deep Space Nine in the uh, one that came after Gods and Generals. Uh, I have to confess. I'm and that not. was actually made several years after Gettysburg, even though it was about the events before Gettysburg. And if anything, false beard technology had gone backwards in that time because <laughs> Bruce Boxleitner's false beard was just amazingly awful. Fortunately, if they ever made a movie about the Shenandoah, looking at the photographs of the crew, there were some nice moustaches and a few uh, mutton chops, but there weren't any of those amazing uh, Civil War land battle beards, as far as I can tell. Well, interestingly, and, and pro- probably the reason for that, is, is apart from James Iredell Waddell, the captain of the Shenandoah, who in uh, many of his pictures sports as you said, a very excellent moustache. But uh, most of the rest of the crew were, were teenagers, or at, at the, the very most in their, in their very early 20s. So uh, William Whittle, for example, yes. is in his very early 20s, despite the fact that he'd actually had, compared to many of the other members of the crew, a very exciting civil war before actually joining the Shenandoah. Yes. Um, was he actually on the Alabama, or was... I believe... Um, now, now, the, I, I think we're we're kind of skipping we're getting ahead. Of, we're, 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 we're we getting are ahead getting ahead of ourselves. But really, um, what you're hearing and what you get, folks, if if you want uh, long discussions on uh, false beard technology in Civil War reenactment movies, then and, and who does not? Then you have come to the right place. But I would just like to, to finish that thought about the anniversary. Is that really the the 150th anniversary of the American Civil War has kind of been the poor cousin of war anniversaries these last couple of years but we've left the best for last and the the see the voyage around the world of the css shenandoah was the last the last um i think significant action of the uh of the american civil war well it was and in fact it was it was a fairly belated last action because <laughs> um, as you'll learn, the, the people on board the Shenandoah valiantly kept fighting the Civil War for a good three or four months after it ended. In fact, most of their most glorious victories actually happened after yes. uh, Appomattox Courthouse. Yes, which, which yes, was, was a bit of a problem. And, and leads to, again to our alternative title, um, Confederate Pirates Save the Whales. So, but... Um, this this podcast, um, our intention with this podcast is we're going to live podcast the entire voyage of the Shenandoah. Now, uh, given that there are large parts of the voyage where the Shenandoah was at sea, and it's fair to say that not a whole lot was happening. Um, I, no problem, Rob. That's yep. when we go into a very long disquisition about false, false beards. beards and, yes, and yes, so on. Yeah. exactly. So uh, we intend to be a um, not particularly uh, reverent um uh, historical podcast. Uh, we're going to go into uh, the 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 arcane and the abstruse. Basically, in order to understand uh, 
the voyage of the CSS Shenandoah, you do need to have some appreciation of um, the background um, of the Confederate um, commerce raiders. And um, basically, um, the, the history of them, uh, when these, the Civil War started in 1860, uh, it was obviously a massive thing for, the, um, for America, but it also um, had massive um, repercussions internationally. And this was because the um, Civil War, as is generally agreed, was um, about, about slavery, but what was it that the slaves produced? Cotton. Cotton. And where did that cotton go, Michael? Um, the cotton went to the. It went to Europe. It went to Europe. It went on ships. It went from southern ports. It went to Europe. It also actually went up to the north as well. But uh, yes, yeah, we're talking about the ships that are crossing the Atlantic. A traditional thing that any navy does in a time of war is you attack your enemy's commerce. Yes, this had been done, of course, in uh, wars before that and wars afterwards. The difference here, I guess, is that uh, whereas the North actually had all the resources and the Navy, the South didn't really have a Navy at the start of the war, so yes. they actually had to create one. Yes. They certainly had some officers, but they didn't really have the have the ships. Well, yes, uh, yes, they did have some officers, and, of course, um, many of the crew of the Shenandoah, including, obviously, their, their captain, were ex-officers um, in the, the U.S. Navy. Um, but uh, so the 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 southern cotton um, exports, um, the southerners were producing um, you know, the the greatest amount of cotton by far in the world. In fact, I'm not even sure if, if any other countries had terribly large cotton industries. And one of the countries that was massively reliant um, on this cotton trade was England, uh, because England um, had set up a pretty wonderful. We, we, we've, we've got one quote, that there were five million people engaged in the English textile trade. Now, I have to say that that sounds like quite a lot, given that the population of England was probably only 40 to 50 million at that stage. But nevertheless, um, the, the textiles trade uh, in England was, was massive. And as soon as the, um, the US Navy cut off or tried to cut off... Um, the flow of cotton to to English ports, um, this um, this caused great hardship. There were there were Lancashire cotton millers and loomers and and all that, all those sorts of people who were apparently starving in the streets, um, and this caused a, a lot of concern at the highest levels uh, of um, English politics, including the then Prime Minister Lord Palmerston. So the Basically, what this meant was that the at the aristocratic level, at the level of politics, and, and while England had the franchise at this time, it was still largely an, an aristocratic um, uh, country, um, the aristocrats were in fact perhaps in favour of um, the, the Confederacy, uh, whereas the working people uh, were there, even though it was the working people who were being... Um, felt the effects, who were the, the starving Lancashire mill workers, uh, were mainly in favour of the union. Now, people who recall uh, Gone with the Wind, you'll recall that... What, what was Rhett Butler's uh, profession during the Civil War? 
He was, of course, a dashing blockade runner. Dashing blockade runner, yes, because Rhett Butler was a guy who had an eye for the main chance, so he didn't want to go off and do cavalry charges and get himself killed. So a, a, being a blockade runner was something that allowed Rhett Butler to uh, have, have his place in society. It was a, a, an approved thing to do, but it also allowed him to get immensely Make rich. bucket loads of money, but, as well as serving the cause. As well as, yes, serving the cause. So there's, there, there are, in fact... Uh, there's sort of a uh, blockade runners and Confederate Navy ships in a way are almost one in the same thing as it, at, at times. Yes, yes. Uh, there were quite a few privateers that were created. And, uh, now, uh, who were they created by? Well, some of them were built in uh, southern ports. Yep. Some of them were built in Europe. And this is this is where we're going to be talking about later on the the great conspiracy by the head of the Confederate Secret Service in Europe, Mr. Bullock, Mr. In fact, Commander James Dunwoody Bullock. That's a very cool name. That's for a very Commander. cool name. If, if you remember, Bond was Commander Bond. So, well, there was uh, a whole there was a whole Confederate Secret Service that were trying to secretly build warships in uh, in in Europe at the time. Yes. The big problem was that if you said you were building a Confederate warship, the whole thing would get shut down immediately. So it all had to be done with subterfusion and secrecy. Um, that's going to come out later when we talk about what happened with the uh, with the Shenandoah. But before that, there were a couple of really famous commerce raiders. Um, in particular, I guess the Florida and the Alabama were the two uh, the two big ones. Well, I think the the Alabama was the one that, that basically had every American uh, ship owner um, you know, quivering in their boots uh, because the the Alabama was captained by Captain Sims, and he loved to sink a ship. He did. In fact, they captured uh, cap- When I say captured, really, the word that should be used there is burn. Uh, Seventy-one ships on their on their very memorable cruise, which happened uh, between uh, eighteen sixty-two and uh, eighteen sixty-four. The difference between the Alabama and the ship that we're going to be spending our time on, the Shenandoah, is the Alabama was actually built as a warship. Yes, yes, it, it, it could go head to head against uh, a another warship. Well, mind you, however, when when the Alabama did in fact try to go head to head with another warship, it uh, got itself sunk. It had its ass handed to it. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. But it could still actually, uh, it could actually try and do that. Yes. Um, it captured, as I said, about uh, seventy-one ships. The Florida did about, uh, I think it was maybe thirty, thirty-three. Thirty-three. They, they captured on their cruise. Yes. This caused. Incredible consternation amongst uh, the shipping community. You had a whole lot of American uh, ship owners rapidly changing their uh, ship registrations to other countries. Insurance rates went through well, the roof. Not only that, um, the the again, I, apparently, I think one percent of American ships were actually sunk by the commerce raiders, but the um, insurance companies put their rates up many times. So really, um, it, it wasn't just the Confederate uh, raiders who were the pirates there, it was, <laughs> it was, it was also the insurance companies. If everybody was, was terrified, um, you know, the uh, Sims had a, had a great eye for publicity, you know, basically they, they were, they, 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 they could 
sink ships in every ocean. They they, they went whenever they wanted, and they they would sink anything. And uh, they often weren't too particular about um, about who they sank too. Now that that was the the other issue that in fact after the war caused considerable legal trouble. Um, for for England, um, many ships changed. The many American ships changed their nationality, but many more American ships pretended to and f- flew false flags and had sets of papers that said that they were, um, say, British or French, when in fact they they were American. And Sims and his ilk were not always um, all that particular about about who they sank, but. Um, the, the problem with this is that, um, so in, in, in the first couple of years of the war between, say, 1862, 1863, for the second and third years of the war, uh, James Commander, James Dunwoody Bullock, had tremendous success with his first couple of commerce raiders. That had come out from, uh, from Europe. There had been some that had come out of southern ports as well. One of the big problems was um, you could build a warship but if you made it too fast and uh, armed it too well, yes. often that would mean you'd have to sacrifice range. Yes. Which yes. meant you could send it out to tootle around for a, <laughs> a, a week or so, but then you'd have to go back into port or refit or, or, or resupply. That actually led to some real problems because a number of these uh, ships that were built um, then had to go and refit somewhere and got stuck in in ports and never and never left again. Um, yeah, well, well, that was a problem un- under the laws of neutrality. Now, despite the fact that England and and France and most of the countries of Europe um, wanted um, wanted all the cotton that they could get, and in many ways would have perhaps preferred um, to see um, America split, because obviously if, if America had split into a northern and a southern part, given that America was a major competitor of all of the European countries, that would have, that would have weakened, uh, America for generations. It would have been like the split between, um, East and West Germany. So, um, James Dunwoody Bullock, commander, had amazing success for a couple of years, but then his nemesis arrived in the form of Charles Francis Adams, who was the, the grandson, I believe, of uh, Adams, the, the, the president, president. Um, yes. played, I believe, by Paul Giacometti in the movie. Anyway, so he was, he was a man of serious parts. He was a very cold and frosty and, I believe, a somewhat snobbish man. But basically, when... Um, I think Paul Giacometti was John Adams, by the way, but never mind. Oh, th- thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, Bob. Um, anyway, so um, when, um, when Charles Adams arrived in, in London um, as the, the ambassador from, uh, from the North, from the Union to England, uh, one of the first things he did uh, was to very, very strongly impress upon Lord Palmerston, the British Prime Minister, that if Palmerston did not stop the flow of warships to the south, uh, in a memorable phrase, this is war. And, you know, England England did not want to go to war with the North uh, North America, you know. Nobody and neither did, by the way, the uh, French at the time. No, 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 no. Nobody really wanted to do that. Um, so Palmerston was kind of between a rock and a hard place here because um, he wanted the cotton for his starving, uh, starving mill workers. Probably not so much because he really cared about the starving mill workers. But, um, again, this was only 20 years after 1848. So, um, you know, no, nobody wanted starving workers who could be recruited to the socialist or Marxist cause. So he wanted the cotton. This this led to uh, issues like, for example, there was a a commerce raider called the the Rappahannock yep. that was that was built. And that, that really was actually a formidable warship. Wasn't that a ram? 
It was, yeah. Unfortunately, um, it uh, it left port uh, very quickly because they had heard that the British authorities were going to impound it. Then it had massive mechanical problems out in the middle of uh, the English Channel and just uh, floated around a bit. <laughs> Eventually put into the French port of Calais to get fixed and the French government impounded it and it never actually left port ever again. So that was in uh, 1863, I believe. So it, it's, it just sat there for the rest of the war. This was the thing that uh, our heroes on board the Shenandoah were uh, terrified that would happen to them. They could, mm. they could get their, their ship out into the water, and then all of a sudden, if they had to put into a port somewhere, they'd be stuck there because either the uh, authorities would impound them or there would be then a real American warship sitting yes. off the uh, port, stopping them coming out again. Mm. So it, it's fair to say that um, Commander Bullock's um, strategy of uh, commissioning uh, commerce raiders started with a bang, but then kind of plummeted. So the Alabama, I believe, had about 70 victories. The Florida had 30. So, you know, yeah. Then we've got of... some other ones. If you have a look at them, it's like zero, for example, in the case yes. of the Rappahannock. Yes. Built at great expense, launched. That actually had uh, great big rifled guns and, as you say, was a uh, as a ram. And it was uh, a propeller ship. Yes, um, yes. This is the, this is a this is something else we'll discuss in in later episodes. How this is all coming about at the time of a great big transformation in uh, in naval warfare, and uh, our ship, the Shenandoah, also had a propeller too. But that was something that caused them a lot of trouble as well, which we'll talk about later too. Anyway, I think I think we should probably get up to speed because, as I said at the beginning, one hundred and fifty years ago today, um, a ship. That was not then called the Shenandoah left London. And if you're wondering why our theme music is that popular old folk song, The Leaving of Liverpool, uh, that is because the um, crew, the officers uh, of the Shenandoah, actually left Liverpool. Uh, They left on a ship called the Laurel, which was absolutely stuffed to the gunwales with stores, with guns. All marked machinery. All marked machinery, yes, because um, that was how they rolled in those days. So um, the crew, uh, what was to become the crew of the the Shenandoah, left Liverpool on the 9th of October um, on the, the ship the Laurel. Uh, the Shenandoah, now the, the Shenandoah at that time was called the Sea King, and it was what they called an extreme clipper. Now, uh, believe me, we're going to have, go into lots more detail about uh, what actually an extreme clipper was, and, um, and we'll just leave it at the moment for saying that a clipper was already uh, an extreme enough ship. Uh, they were ships designed purely for speed, but, and let's foreshadow here, they were not warships. Yes. So, um, as I said, 150 years ago today, um, the Laurel left the port of Liverpool. It went down the Mersey and it slipped out to sea. All the men aboard were either Confederate officers or hand-picked men or men recruited unmarried men who thought that they were going on a voyage to India. Yes, there were also some on the Sea King itself who may have thought that at the time too. Yes, And... uh, so the Laurel set off, they were all very excited because those who actually knew, the, the Confederates, 
they thought they were being taken out to their warship to go on their exciting cruise to uh, prey upon American shipping. Well, which was which was the case, but they probably thought yes. they were going on more of a warship than they were. When they when they got to the Sea King, um, let's put it this way: what they saw was not something like the Alabama. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, well, Rob's got a very interesting quote that he'd like to like to, to round things off with, and I've got a quote that'll just end it perfectly. But anyway, <laughs> off you go, Rob. So we're going to introduce one of the one of the crew of the uh, Shenandoah, one of the officers, uh, Cornelius Hunt, who interestingly uh, later on there's a theory that uh, he blackmailed Captain Waddell um, over a possible. Um, assignation with a, a union female prisoner but um uh, we'll be getting into that later so cornelius hunt as he left the shenandoah for, on, on the laurel to head out to sea recollected in his memoirs published in 1867 no one unless he has stood in a similar place can appreciate the crowd of emotions that whirled through my mind i was about to join clandestinely a vessel commissioned by a government still in embryo but which I had sworn to support to cruise against the commerce of another government which still claimed me as its liege subject. If the cause I upheld was successful, there was wealth, fame and glory to be earned. If it failed, a felon's doom impended over me and my associates. But I was too young and hopeful to long contemplate the dark side of the case. The ship I was to join was afloat, the oceans was before us, and sail alike. I was content to put my trust in providence, Neptune and the Southern Confederacy. And uh, another crewman, actually, in his journal, actually wrote uh, something about the start of his journey as well. He wrote, Never did a ship go to sea so miserably prepared. Well, we'll be getting into a lot more detail about the miserable preparations of the Sea King San Simondoa in our next episode. Thank you very much. This has been Rob and Mob. Uh, Shenandoah down under, Confederate pirates save the whales, and over from me. And over from me. Oh, and in our next episode, we'll actually talk about the whales as well. <laughs> yes, we will, we will come to the whales. The whales are coming. Over and out. Goodbye.